So we kind of took the last two weeks and we talked uh, specifically about the visions that Daniel had that were um, just in detail a, a line out of history of the four great world empires that would lead up to the birth of Christ and prepare the world for Christ and for the gospel to go forth. We've not really even talked about that yet because we're still, we're still in our timeline during the time of the Persian Empire, uh, but we're getting ready to move into the Greek Empire. We're, we're not, well, by the end of this lesson tonight, we'll be there. But any, anybody have any questions about anything? I know we went through a lot of stuff and it's a lot of information and, you know, I give you a handout, but it's really kind of boring. It's just some text. Sorry, it's not more, you know, um, visual, but uh, it is what it is. I'd buy you all, you know, a colored book with maps and charts, but you should invest in that yourself. <laughs> Anybody, any questions, any thoughts, any, uh, any ideas, anything that the discussion the last couple of weeks has peaked in your mind? Any questions? All right. All right, well, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off tonight, uh, lesson 15. So we're at 538 B.C. on our timeline. And remember, um, B.C., so I think Caleb had asked this question one day after class. The, the B.C. is before Christ, and it is English because, um, and it was in the, the time in which English-speaking people, very early in, you know, still centuries ago, but that's where that comes from, so... Um, Obviously, in Jesus' day, they weren't saying, you know, 538 B.C. Um, the Jews have their own calendar, and they still go by that calendar. Uh, in fact, there are many different, um, though the world uses this calendar, it's, it's the uh, corrected, see, it was the Julian calendar, and then it was corrected, and it, is it the Julian calendar now, and, and uh, they corrected it? And was the, um, was it the Gregorian calendar? Yeah, now it's the Julian calendar. So Jesus is born in 4 BC because the Gregorian calendar had a, an error in it that was discovered. I thought I read that when they talked about Cyrus took uh, the throne. Uh huh. It may be. Now, say that again. When Cyrus took the throne. One people looked at it the third year of his reign, and then looked at it the first year of his reign. So when Daniel was saying it was the first year and third year. Okay. I think I it may have. Um, I'm not going to attempt to speak to that because I'm not sure. Um, Well, let's just go over to Daniel. So um, you're saying Cyrus. So we start out. Um, hmm. Well, I'm going to look that up. I'm not sure where that that. So if it's Cyrus, that's going to be after Nebuchadnezzar, after Belshazzar, after Darius, and where Cyrus then sends, um, sends the Jews back in the third year. No? In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, A vision appeared to me. Yeah, I don't no, that's okay. Now, uh, I don't know if we talked about, so in, I know we mentioned this last week, and I don't know if, because in Daniel 8, it's the third year of Belshazzar. Um, 
Well, Daniel 7 is the first year of Belshazzar. So it, it, I don't know if, um, because we're not always moving in chronological time. There was one place, and I don't remember where it was. Well, verse chapter 10 is in the third year of Cyrus, right. king of Persia. And what were you saying that... Um, Yes, 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 yes. Because it's dealing with when Daniel had those visions. Yeah. And um, so Darius, in the first year of Darius, um, Darius the Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Um, and he was made king by Cyrus. I'll bring you um, a chronology of this. In the, and then in chapter 10, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So you have Darius the Mede who is made governor over Babylon. And Cyrus is the king. So Darius and Cyrus are in the same kingdom but they're not, Cyrus is the king. It says Darius was made king. He was made, in essence, the way we would understand it, governor over Babylon. But Cyrus was the king of Persia. And that's what's referred to in, in Daniel 10. Um, and then in, in Daniel 10, we have... Um, we have another vision of the glorious man. And then prophecies again concerning Persia and Greece. Okay. Um, we're doing the time, and we may get to some of this because Daniel, again, warring kings of north and south. Uh, sometimes this is hard to understand, and this is not a study on the book of Daniel. Uh, but a lot of these, like for instance, in Daniel chapter 11, where it's talk about the warring kings of north and south, this is speaking of the division of Alexander's kingdom uh, in these four kingdoms that are north, south, east, and west that were divided between his four generals. And after Alexander's death, leading up to the Roman Empire in that intertestamental period, um, a lot of this that Daniel is seeing is what's happening with the history of the Jews as this divided Greek empire is ruling uh, the world that Alexander conquered. And it consolidates into two main families that have great impact on the history of the Jews. And this is why Daniel is being shown this, because it's going to have a major impact on the Jews and God's people leading up to the birth of Christ. And we may, uh, when we get to some of that, because remember, Rome doesn't become an empire. So it's 49 BC when Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon and, and that really kind of kicks off this move from Rome being a republic to, to turning into a world-dominating empire. And remember, it was Octavian, or Caesar Augustus, after the assassination of Julius Caesar, then Octavian ultimately took control of the Roman Empire with the defeat of Cleopatra, who was the last heir of this Greek Seleucid Empire. So that was like the end of the Greeks and the beginning of that fourth beast, that fourth part of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw and the fourth beast that Daniel saw. So we may come back to some of this as we go through the timeline because Daniel lays out um, really the history leading all the way up to the coming of Christ. All right. So in 538... Uh, the Persians overthrow the Babylonians. So the Persian Empire becomes the power of Mesopotamia and they become the next world empire. 
So the head of gold is, um, is no more. And now the, the, the arms and chest of silver, the Persians and the Medes are ruling. So this is that uh, silver on the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw. This is the bear that Daniel saw in his vision. But it's also the ram with two horns. And remember two horns and one was higher than the other horn. Again, this pictures the Medes and the Persians. They're together, but the Persians are the stronger portion of the empire. Then uh, uh, in 536 BC, under Persian rule, after they have overtaken, overthrown the Babylonians, uh, the Jews are allowed to return to Judah. And in Ezra chapter 2, verse 64, the scripture tells us that Ezra led 42,360 Jews back to Judah and a destroyed Jerusalem. Then in 535 BC, after they make the, the months long journey from Babylon, Persia, back to Judah, to Jerusalem, in 535 BC, they begin work on the foundation of the temple. So they begin the work, but it's 20 years before it's completed. And when you read the scripture, you'll see that they begin this work, but it lays dormant for, 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 for many years. Uh, I, think, I think Haggai, I think Nehemiah, I think for 15 years, they basically do nothing. Uh, but in 515 BC, 20 years after their initial return, the work on the temple was completed. And the first Passover in the second temple was celebrated, was observed. Now remember, this is when they're laying the foundation and it says that the people who were old enough to have seen the first temple and its first salvation, so, you know, 70, 50 to 70 years. So the initial Babylonian invasion was, was in 606, but it was 586, um, somewhere around in there, 588, when they came back to destroy the city. So if you would have been carried away in 588, you would have seen the temple, but now it's going to be 50 years before you go back to Jerusalem and you're watching them lay the foundation of the temple. And just by looking at the foundation of the temple, you're weeping because you realize that this is not going to be the glorious house that Solomon built. And when they dedicate the temple, they're lamenting. But the prophet says the glory of this former house shall be greater than the glory or the glory of, of this latter house shall be greater than the glory of the former house. So the people are weeping because the glory of the former house was so much greater than the glory of this latter house. They're looking at the second temple and they're basically saying, in essence, this is nothing compared to Solomon's temple. But the prophet says, the glory of this latter house shall be greater, shall far exceed the glory of the former house. Now, why is that? Why was the prophet able to say that? Any thoughts? Any? Were they just, was the prophet just talking about architecture? Who walked in that latter temple that did not walk in that former temple? Whose glory was brought into that latter temple in bodily form, not just in a cloud, the Lord Jesus. I mean, the very moment Mary and Joseph carried baby Jesus into that temple, that the, the glory of that temple, of that latter house, far exceeded the glory of the former house. The glory that exceeded the former house was the glory that Christ brought into that temple. And it was also the glory that spoke of Christ who 
who replaced that temple. So God tore that temple down again. We'll see that in our timeline study. But he raised up the true temple. After it was destroyed, he raised it up three days later. And that temple that God raised up three days later, the Lord Jesus Christ, that was the true temple, that Solomon's temple, Nehemiah, Ezra, Nehemiah's temple, Herod's temple, all could only point to and speak of. And God got rid of those houses made by the hands of man and he raised up a house not made with hands. He raised up that stone that was cut out without hands that is becoming the mountain that's filling the earth. So the temple, God has already raised up the third temple. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are, the Bible says, temples of the Holy Spirit. You are living stones being built up a holy habitation for God in the spirit to offer spiritual sacrifices unto him. So we are that temple. We're not waiting for that temple. You are that temple. We're not looking for that temple. It's here. And it is literally filling the earth. So that second temple was completed in 515. They celebrated that Passover. That is the same year that Esther is brought before King Ahasuerus. Then in 509 BC, the observance of Purim began to be observed on the 14th and 15th of the month, Adar. Who knows what Purim is? Huh? No. Hanukkah is the feast of dedication or the feast of lights. Purim, what the word pure, it's a Persian word uh, that means to cast lots. And so um, Mordecai, I mean, Haman cast lots to determine what day the Jews would be exterminated. And he goes to the king and he says, oh, king, let me tell you about your enemies. And I've got a plan to save you from them. And so he cast Pur, determined the date by Pur. And that was the date that they were going to exterminate all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Well, it just so happened that God arranged for this Jewish orphan named Esther to be brought before the king. And the king chooses Esther to be his queen because his queen wouldn't dance before him and his drunk friends because she had too much dignity. So she was banished from the presence of the king and there was a beauty contest held and the king got to choose whoever he wanted and Esther was chosen. And because Esther was in the kingdom for such a time as that and she was in the place she was for such a time as that, she was in a position to save the Jews. You can read the story. It's in the book of Esther. But in 515 is the year, the year they lay the foundation of the temple or the year the temple was completed, Esther's brought before Ahasuerus or Xerxes. Then, six years later, they're observing the Feast of Purim. This year, they, the Jews still, so this was the first feast added to the original seven that God gave to the Jews recorded in, in Leviticus. And Purim is observed the similar time of year, close to the same time of year as um, Passover, but it's a, it's a little before Passover. It's in our March. This year it was on March 6th and March 7th. And so this feast celebrates the salvation of the Jews in the time of Ahasuerus or Xerxes when God used Queen Esther to expose the evil plan of Haman to exterminate all the Jews. And, and in reversing that, God made it possible for the Jews to destroy their enemies. Then we fast forward to 480 BC and Xerxes and his Persian army invaded Europe 
with 1.7 million men, historians tell us, 80,000 horses and 1,207 ships. By any standard, that's a big army. There is a place, so, man, I wish I had a big map to show you guys. I wish I had a screen I could show you. Do you guys know where the uh, uh, Black Sea is? Can you all tell me where the Black Sea is? Huh? I mean, if you can, it's no, it's no, uh, it, it is, it, it is, it's, it's, uh, whoop, it's in Europe. One, one, stop, one coast is in Europe. Where's the other coast? If somebody said Asia, and they are correct. Yes. So if you were to look at a map of the, uh, or a satellite image of the Black Sea, uh, I can only describe it to you, but who knows what sea meets the Black Sea? There's a sea that runs into the Black Sea. So here's the Black Sea, and there's a sea here. Not the Caspian Sea. The Aegean Sea. It would be the Aegean Sea. I think the... Uh, I think the um, um, am I correct? The Adriatic Sea is on the coast of Italy. Yes, it's the Aegean Sea. Well, uh, where the Aegean Sea comes right into the Black Sea, there is a, um, there is a very, very small, there's another small sea between the Aegean and the Black Sea. It's called the Mar 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 Mamara Sea. And if you were to look at a map, there is a very narrow waterway. It's about three quarters of a mile wide that connects the, Aege the Aegean Sea to the Mamara Sea to the Black Sea. And that very, very narrow, thin piece of water between the Aegean Sea and the Mamara Sea is called the Hellas Point. And what... Xerxes did with his Persian army is he'd march them. Now, the Greeks, well, let me give you a little back history. So Xerxes' father, Cyrus the Great, decided that uh, if, if you can picture the Black Sea, you know where Turkey is, Istanbul, which used to be Constantinople, but it's Istanbul now. So Turkey there, that up above Israel, Syria, there's Turkey, goes all the way to the Aegean Sea, the Black Sea's there. Well, that area of Turkey that runs to the Aegean Sea, the uh, Persians decided that they wanted to take over that part of Asia. And there were uh, a group of, it was called Ionia. And Ionia was in Asia, but it was a Greek colony. So the Ionians were aligned with the Greeks. And the Ionians would have lived where, where Troy used to be. Remember the Trojan War? Right there on the coast of Turkey in that, that area, Ionia. Well, Cyrus decides he wants to take Ionia. And he goes to capture Ionia. And the Ionians put up a good battle. But not only that, but these people across the sea, from across the sea, who are unknown to Cyrus, they come over to help the Ionians and made it really difficult for Cyrus to, to win, but he did. But he was so angry at these people, these Mycenaeans, these people that came over from across the sea. They were, they were the Athenians, the people from Athens. That Cyrus ordered his, his butler that... Every time he got ready to eat a meal, his butler would remind him, remember the Athenians, remember the Athenians, 
Remember the Athenians. And Cyrus ordered his butler to say that three times, every time before he ate a meal. Because he wanted revenge. He wanted to get them back. Well, uh, when Xerxes becomes king, the son of Cyrus becomes king, Xerxes remembers his father's hatred of the Greeks. And Xerxes decides he's going to invade Europe. He's going to invade Greece. Well, to do that, he's going to have to cross the sea. Now, how do you take a million point seven men, 80,000 horses, and, and everything they need across the sea? You say, well, that's what those 1,207 ships are for. Well, it is. But what Xerxes did was he built a bridge across the Hellas Point. So he put ships out there, and he built a causeway across those ships. And his almost 200 men, 2 million man army and everything, horses, all of that, they had to, they had to build... Um, they had to build these walls that were high enough so that as the horses are marching across, the horses couldn't see the water because they would have gone crazy. So they had to build these walls on this bridge so that the horses didn't know they were crossing over water. It, it's one of the greatest engineering feats of world history. And it was a Magnificent strategy because the Greeks never dreamed that the Persians would do that. Um, and so he crosses at the Hellas point and he goes up and he invades Greece from the north instead of sailing across the street and having a, a beach landing. So this army crossed the Hellas point on a bridge formed out of ships. And the bridge would have spanned about three quarters of a mile, that three quarter of a mile wide portion of the Hellas point. Xerxes goes and he burns Athens. So at this time in Athens, the Parthenon is there. And the Parthenon was said to have been one of the wonders of the world. Well, when Xerxes gets there, he burns everything. He burns the Parthenon. He burns everything he can find. And he, uh, he, he pillages Athens. The Athenians were gone. They abandoned, fortunately, because they knew who was coming. They figured it out, and they abandoned it. But, but he burns Athens, but he was defeated in a naval battle. Does anyone know the name of that naval battle? Oh, well, you, of course you do. You got your paper, right? It was the Battle of Salamis. I remember when I was in fifth grade, I studied about the Battle of Salamis, and I was so fascinated by it. Uh, and I had a, a beautifully illustrated history book in fifth grade that showed um, paintings from, from, you know, ancient artists and, and other artists throughout history who, who painted the Battle of Salamis. Um, and so... Do you know how the English defeated the Spanish Armada? How? Why were, the, why, were the, why were the English able to beat the Spanish Armada that was so much more powerful and bigger than their little dinky English fleet? What could those English ships do that those big Spanish ships couldn't do? Yeah, they couldn't maneuver very well. So the, the small English ships literally sailed circles around them and were able to just decimate them because the Spanish ships were so big and they were so tall that when, when they shoot their guns, they just shoot right over the tops of the English ships and they, they, they had no way to lower their guns. Well, this is kind of how the Greeks beat the Persians. The Persians, their ships, so they didn't have sailing ships. They had ships filled with slaves and they would row i mean big ships and they had hundreds of slaves in the galley of these ships with with hundreds of oars and they would it was oar power it was man powered but these persian ships as impressive as they were they were much bigger than the greek ships and the way they would do warfare then they didn't have cannons 
So they had battering rams on the fronts of their ships. And the Persian ships were gigantic. They were big. They were huge. And so when you got hit by one of those Persian ships, it was just going to plow right through your ship. Your ship was going to sink. The Persians were going to board your ship and kill everyone on there. And then they just keep going after your ship sunk. The problem was with the Greeks, their ships were small enough and they coaxed the Persians into an area of the Aegean, of the Aegean Sea there around the Greek islands where it became very constrained and these giant Persian ships didn't have room to maneuver. So these Greek ships were just ramming, ramming, boarding, fighting, setting ships on fire and burning the Persian ships and the Greeks. So it was kind of like the English and the Spanish. Nobody gave the English a chance to beat the Spanish, but they did. No one would have given the Greeks a chance to beat the Persians. But guess what? The Greeks beat the Persians in a decisive naval battle at Salamis. And that defeat proved to the world that the Persians weren't invincible. Because up until that time, literally no one believed the Persians could be beat. And so here are the Greeks, this unknown. These people aren't even a nation. They're not even... A coherent country. They're just city-states, but they all came together, mainly Athens, to, to fight the Persians, and they defeat them. And yes, Xerxes sacked Athens, burned the Parthenon, but he lost his navy, and he returned to Persia defeated. Now, he keeps, the Persians keep going, you know, it's, it's going to be well over a century. It's going to be another 150 years that the Persians will rule. But, but now they're, they've reached their peak. And now they're, they're in decline. They don't know it, but they are. So 454, Nehemiah leads the second wave of Jews, still under Persian rule, still under... Xerxes. So they leave Susa and Mesopotamia to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and encourage the Jews. So the temple's been rebuilt, but the wall is still in disarray. So when the Babylonians overthrew it in 586, they burned the temple, tore it all down to the ground. They broke down the walls and burned the gates on purpose because they didn't want that city ever rebuilt again. But in God's providence, the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians and God gave the Jews favor with the Persians and they send them back to rebuild the temple and then send them back to rebuild the wall. But not only do they send them back to rebuild the wall, they finance the whole project. So 454 is when Nehemiah leads the second wave back to to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And how many days did it take them to rebuild that wall? Remember, it took them 20 years to, re to rebuild the temple. How long did it take to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem? If it took 20 years to build the temple, how long do you think it took to rebuild the wall all the way around that city? 52 days. 52 days. That's right. Not 52 years, but 52 days. It's amazing. It was God's favor. It was, it was just really a miracle. Then 12 years later in 442, Nehemiah returns to King Xerxes because what was Nehemiah to the king? He was his cup bearer. And you know why a king has a cup bearer? Huh? Yeah, to make sure that no one assassinates the king by poison. So Nehemiah had to eat and drink everything first before the king and queen did. And then wait to see whether Nehemiah was going to croak or not. And then they'd eat supper or breakfast or lunch or whatever it was. Nehemiah was the cupbearer and he comes before the king and he sat of countenance. Not a good thing for a cupbearer to do. And the king notices right away. Why are you sad, Nehemiah? What's wrong? You going to poison me? And he says, uh, he says, let the king live forever. I'm sad, king, because my city is in disarray and my people are discouraged. Well, what do you want? So he prayed and he told him and he says, go for it. How long do you need to be gone? 12 years. 
So this is why Nehemiah, after 12 years, goes back to Xerxes, because that was the agreement. He wasn't releasing him from being his cupbearer. He was just giving him a 12-year leave of absence. So 442 B.C., Nehemiah returns to the king after his 12-year leave of absence. It is said by ancient historians that in that year, all wars ceased throughout most of the world. It was, it was a time of peace, of unprecedented peace, even in the ancient world. So we think that, you know, we live in the time when wars are, there were wars constantly all over the place. But in that year, it, it makes me wonder, you know, what? There, I think there's spiritual significance there. I would say that spiritual significance is related to Nehemiah's work and the rebuilding of Jerusalem, rebuilding of the wall, the completion of that work. Um, that's just my opinion. But I thought that was kind of an interesting note um, that was made by many historians at that time. 431 B.C., the Peloponnesian War begins between Athens and Sparta. Why is it called the Peloponnesian War? Anybody know? I have students in here. Can any of my students tell me why it's called the Peloponnesian War? Between Sparta and Athens, where did Sparta, where was Sparta? It, it, let's have a geography lesson. Where, where, where was Sparta when it existed? I'm looking at my student who, two of, huh? It is Greece, but what part of, what, what is that part of Greece called? It is south. It's, it's a peninsula. What's a peninsula? Yes, so it almost looks like islands. That almost looks like Greece and there's an island, but it's not. It's actually a peninsula. And that peninsula has a name. What's it called? It's called the Peloponnese. It's called the Peloponnese. The Peloponnese is that southern peninsula of Greece. And Sparta was the city-state on that part of the peninsula there that looks like an island, but it wasn't. And then about 100 miles northeast of Sparta on the Greek mainland on the coast of the Aegean Sea was Athens. So at this time, Greece is not a nation ruled by a single ruler. Greece is a... It, they, they didn't even really call it Greece. It's what we call it now. But it was just a region and, and it was... Uh, uh, it was just a series of city-states. The two main city-states that existed at that time, the two most powerful city-states were Sparta and Athens. So in 431, the Peloponnesian War begins. Now, leading up to this, while... Xerxes and these guys are ruling Asia. And remember, they tried to come invade Greece. It didn't work. So the Greeks are over here in their city-states. And the city-state of Athens uh, at this time is experiencing what's called the Golden Age of Athens or what many historians call the Golden Age of Greece. And so um, who knows the three... Famous Greek philosophers. How do you remember them in correct order? Spa. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. So Socrates, um, Socrates is alive at this time. This is where Socrates is living. And Socrates is a famous Greek thinker, philosopher, uh, who's living at this time during the Golden Age of Greece or the Golden Age of Athens. And Athens is becoming more and more powerful. Now, I'm really testing my students here, but maybe some of you also know. What is the main difference between the Spartans of Sparta and the Athenians of Athens? What was the main difference in those two cultures? Come on. 
No. Yes. Sparta was warlike. So a Spartan father, when his child was born, he looked at that child. And if that child didn't look like it was going to be a good warrior, if it looked small, sickly, they had a place up in the mountains. Every Spartan father would take his child, his son up there and leave them. Only those sons born to those Spartan families that looked like warriors from the day they came out of their mother's womb were allowed to live. The rest were taken up and they were left to die. Because Sparta was consumed with military might, power, and war. Athens, on the other hand, was a cultural city. And the people there loved culture, they loved art, they loved theater, they loved philosophy. This is where Socrates was, and Socrates was a great thinker. Some believe it's not, there's no way to prove it, but some believe that Socrates did not even hold to the Greek pantheon of gods, that he may have been a monotheist. We don't know for sure. But Socrates also believed in freedom, he believed in education. So this is when democracy, the roots of democracy... As we know today, this is where they begin, right here in Greece, with, with the, the wisdom, the thinking, the love of wisdom that, that Socrates had. And Socrates had a very famous student. Who knows what his name was? Plato. Not Plato, Plato. You play with Plato, you think with Plato, right? Plato was a very, was Socrates' most famous student. Who knows Socrates' method of teaching? He didn't have, huh? What, what's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he walked around. They walked around and they talked. Socrates didn't write any of his teachings down. His students did. He, he spoke everything. It was an oral tradition. But Plato, Plato and his other students wrote the teachings of Socrates down, which is how we have the writings of Socrates not written by Socrates at all. Kind of like Jesus didn't write anything down. His, his students, his disciples wrote everything down. So it's during this time of the golden age of Athens that the Spartans, the city-state of Sparta, sees Athens growing and becoming more and more powerful economically, militarily, uh, impacting the world, establishing, you know, relationships and alignments. And they became very insecure and one day launched an attack and went to war with, with Athens. So the Peloponnesian War begins in 431 B.C. between Athens and Sparta. And in the end, Sparta wins. Um, but before we get there, in 428 B.C., there was a great leader in Athens. His name was Pericles. Has anyone ever heard of Pericles? Now, so we're, we're, we're going to talk about these guys because... We are still living uh, with the impact these men made in history. So we're in 428 BC, and you got this guy named Pericles. Noah, can you tell us anything about Pericles? You just heard of him. Yeah. So Pericles was a military leader, so Athens didn't have a king. They had. Um, they had this group of um, men who were like a ruling council. And then you had these 10 guys that were called strategoys. And they were the 10 military leaders. And Pericles was one of these 10. Pericles was the most powerful man. And so um, there was a guy that was kind of Pericles' rival. And you know how Pericles got rid of him? So 
who knows who love, likes being ostracized? Anybody like being ostracized? Huh? So where does that word ostracized come from? What does it mean to be ostracized? Yeah, I mean, you know, you could ostracize me and make me feel so unloved, unwanted, unwelcome that I just leave. Well, in ancient Greece and other cultures, do you know what an ostracon is? An ostracon was a piece of pottery, a broken shard of pottery. And on that broken piece of pottery, you would write someone's name. And that broken piece of pottery was called an ostracon. And there was a place everyone would take their ostracons. And when someone had six thousand ostracons with their name on there, that person had to leave the city. They had to leave. So Pericles' greatest rival, because people loved Pericles so much and they, they didn't like his rival because he didn't like Pericles, the people of Athens had an ostracon drive and when they got 6,000 ostracons, this guy, by law, had to leave the city. He had no choice. So him, his family, everything, pack up and leave. You're gone. You're ostracized. You're not part of our city anymore. And when that guy goes, Pericles, even though Athens didn't have a king or a governor or a single ruler, Pericles was so popular, so loved. He was a very charismatic leader. He talked a lot about, and this is really how Athens grew in power and why they became a threat to Sparta. He was very patriotic and he encouraged Athenians to take pride in their city-state and to work hard and to do the right things and to make Athens a better city, a better city-state. And people listened to Pericles because he was so persuasive and so his, through his life, through his words, he, he modeled that, and people it caught on. And so Pericles, they're in the midst of the, um, they're in the midst of this Peloponnesian War, and a plague breaks out. And in the midst of the plague, Pericles dies, not, not by Spartan warfare, but by the plague. And so Pericles is the guy who brought democracy to Greece. Pure democracy. I mean, they lived under a pure democracy. Now today we would say that's not, that's not a good thing. But that's the way Greece functioned. But those roots of democracy where the people can vote, that was taken and refined, and the Romans established a republic. We live in a democracy, but we're a republic. We're not a pure democracy. We say we have democratic rule and that we get to vote, but we're a, we're a republic. We're ruled by laws so that the majority can't make 6,000 ostracons and drive everybody out that they don't like. There's laws that keep you from doing that. That's what a republic, that's the difference. But the roots of democracy, the roots of our democracy, even in our republic, come from right here for in, in this time when Pericles is, is in Athens and Socrates is philosophizing and they are, love freedom and they love education and they even wanted the lowest of their classes, even the slaves, to be educated because they believed men couldn't be free if they weren't educated. So the Greeks advocated education for everyone. Then after 27 years, this Peloponnesian War lasts 27 years. In 404 BC, the Spartans defeat uh, the Athenians. In just uh, not too many years later, 48 years later, Alexander was born of King Philip of Macedonia. And this Alexander, this son of Philip, would become known as Alexander 
the Great, the guy who would conquer all of Asia in his short life. He only lived 32 years and eight months. Interestingly, the same day that Alexander was born, the temple of Diana in Ephesus burned down. Remember, Paul goes to Ephesus and the temple of Diana is there. Well, this is the rebuilt temple because the original temple was, was burnt down. And it is said on the same day that Alexander is born, the temple of Diane burns. And the ancient historians and philosophers would say this, the temple of Diana burned down because Diana was away from home that night, bringing Alexander into the world and could not save her own temple. That was, um, that was a nod to the greatness of Alexander, that he, he was so great a leader that conquered and did so much in such a short period of time. He, he obtained godlike status to, to the humans that he encountered and that he ruled over. It was deliberately burned down by a man who said that he wanted to be world famous as the one who destroyed so great and excellent a work. But the council of uh, the common council of Asia decreed it against the law to ever utter his name again. So he didn't become world famous because they made it against the law to, to say his name or to write his name. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. They should do that today with people. <laughs> 351 B.C., Artemisia wanted to perpetuate the memory of her husband, Mausolus, and had a stupendous tomb built for him at Halicarnassus. The tomb was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world, which was also the temple of Diana. This tomb at Halicarnassus was uh, built by her to, to commemorate her husband, but she was so stricken by grief that she literally died of a broken heart and never saw the thing com completed. It was completed eventually. And the tomb for Mausolus at Helicarnassus is where we get our word mausoleum. So the first mausoleum was built for Mausolus. 337 BC, Philip, king of Macedonia and father of Alexander becomes the general. He becomes the general and supreme commander over all Greek forces. So this is... This is when the Greeks go from being this assortment of city-states, loosely knit together, to now under one commander. So Philip of Macedonia becomes, he becomes voted in as the general and supreme commander over all Greek forces. And he makes preparations to go and to defeat the Persians. One year later, in 336 B.C., King Philip is murdered by someone who held a grudge against him. This occurred while Philip was celebrating the marriage of his daughter. His daughter, Cleopatra, was marrying Alexander. Kind of weird. Alexander, his son, succeeded Philip. And that same year, he was made general in his father's place to lead the Greek forces against the Persians. And in 334 BC, Alexander sets his mind on the conquest of Asia. And it is said that Alexander had a dream in which the likeness of the high priest of Jerusalem appeared to him in his sleep, telling him that he was to enter Asia quickly and that he would conquer the Persian Empire. Now, who remembers, this is 334 B.C., who remembers the visions that Daniel had? Remember, remember the uh, goat who comes from across the sea, goes across the face of the earth, and his feet don't touch the ground, and he crashes into this ram and tramples it to death. It's a picture of Alexander overthrowing the Persians. So in 334 B.C., he sets out to this. In the spring of that year, 334 B.C., Alexander enters Asia and begins his conquest. In 333 B.C., Alexander comes to Grodium in Phrygia, where the Grodian knot is said to reside. Anybody heard of the Grodian knot? 
So the Grodian knot is this uh, legend that supposedly existed where Grotius, the founder of, of, of this region and this city, tied his, the yoke of his chariot to a pole in a knot that no one could untie. In the legend, the tradition was the person who is able to untie Grodian's knot will conquer all of Asia. And so, you know, this knot's there, supposedly on this pole, and no one can untie it. This is, what does this remind you of? Yeah, kind of reminds you of Arthur and the sword and the stone. So Alexander comes to Grotius where there really is, supposedly, I mean, evidently there really was this Grodian knot. And Alexander unties it. I, I, as I read this historical account, I have pictures in my mind of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the guy, the, uh, the Arabic guy has got his sword and he's doing all of this and, and um, what's his name just pulls his pistol out and shoots him. Well, what the historians tell us is Alexander comes to this knot that no one's ever been able to untie and he pulls out his sword and he, <laughs> he cuts the... He cuts the leather up and then unties the knot and says, I'm your guy. Guess what? He did indeed conquer all of, per, all of Asia. So he unties the Grodian knot and he conquers, uh, he start, sets out to conquer Asia. As Alexander is not, this is where we're going to end tonight. As Alexander, at this very same time, he's untying the Grodian knot. So let's go down to Israel. Let's go down to Judah and to Samaria. Who's still ruling the world technically? Persia is. Alexander's just getting started. So Persia is still ruling the world. And so when we go down to uh, Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, Manasseh, the brother of Judah, Jadua, Jadua is the high priest, and Manasseh is his brother. They're both priests, right, serving in the temple. But Manasseh had married a foreign woman. He married the daughter of Sanballaset, uh, or Sanballates. Remember Sanballat? Same group of people. Sanballat was made governor of Samaria by the Persian king, the same group of people here. Remember, they, they wanted to come and help the Jews rebuild the temple, and the Jews told them, no, you have no part in this. Well, Matthias, or Manasseh, marries a foreign wife, and his brother, the high priest, comes and says, you either have to give up your wife or you have to give up the priesthood. But you cannot be a priest in God's temple and be married to a foreign wife, a woman. Can't do it. So Manasseh goes to, to uh, his father-in-law, Sambalates, to tell him that he's going to have to abandon his wife, his daughter, the, the Sambalates' daughter, because he can't give up his priesthood. So he goes and Sambalates tells him, hey, maybe you won't have to give up your priesthood. What if I help you become a high priest and also the governor over a region, over a province? I'll help you build a temple on this mountain. What mountain? Mount Gerizim. Now think about the woman at the well. This is the mountain. And this is the place the woman's asking Jesus, where's the right place to worship, this mountain or Jerusalem? Here's how this gets started. Right here. While Alexander the Great is conquering Asia, Manasseh, in an effort to hang on to his unlawful wife, agrees to go along with Sambalati's plan and he abandons the temple in Jerusalem and he goes over to Sambalati's and all the other priests who have foreign wives also abandon the Lord and abandon the temple and they come over to the Samaritans and Sambalati's tells Manasseh and these priests, I'm going to get authority from Darius to build this temple from the king of Persia. And so they come over 
And eventually that temple is built, but it's not built under the Persians. It's going to be built under the Greeks. We'll get to that uh, next week. Um, so Alexander's got 10 more years of conquering before he dies. So we're just in the beginning time of his escapades. So any questions? I know it's a lot of information. Yes. So that would have been earlier. So when Xerxes crosses the Hellas point, he goes through Thermopylae, and that's when that would have that would have happened. Yeah. To give him more time to get prepared, and that's why Athens was abandoned. So at that time, Sparta and Athens were together to fight. Yeah. So those Greek city states came together against their common enemy, the Persians. Yes. Any other questions? All right. Anything that you would like to um, go back? Anything I haven't covered? There's a lot of history we haven't covered, obviously. If there's anything you want to know about particularly, please let me know, and we'll, if I can get the information for that, we'll talk about that.